The Brief is supported by Bloomberg Connects, the free arts and culture app. One hundred and fifty six schools close over concrete safety concerns, sparking a crisis in government. Acclaimed social housing architect Peter Barber calls for a mass homes building programme. The rising support among Londoners for the ultra low emission zone and Marks and Spencer launches an appeal to resurrect its Oxford Street redevelopment. My name is Merlin Fulcher. I'm an architectural journalist and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's big stories in architecture, planning and housing news. Welcome to The Brief from Open City. My guest this week is Rob Fien. Rob is the new director of the London Society. Welcome to the show. Massive fan. Thank you, Merlin. The government has found itself at the centre of a political storm following the shock closure of more than 150 schools in England amid concerns over concrete safety. It is a situation that has been slammed as, quote, shocking by the Royal Institute of British Architects, which has repeatedly warned about schools' structural safety. The AJ has been covering this unfolding story since the government's belated decision to force 156 schools to shut. All 156 are buildings made of autoclaved aerated concrete. This is known as rack, uh, and they are without safety measures in place. Outgoing RIBA president Simon Alford said the last-minute nature of the school closure, which comes just days before pupils return to schools, was shocking, and especially given the repeated warnings issued over RAAC in schools. As far back as 2018, the Standing Committee on Structural Safety described the partial collapse of a roof at a primary school in Kent as a, quote, near miss, which could have resulted in fatalities had it not taken place on a weekend, and issued a warning over the danger of buildings with rack. Rack is a lightweight and inexpensive form of concrete used extensively in the construction of buildings with flat roofs between the 1950s and 1990s in the UK. However, no one knows exactly how many. The material has a short life expectancy of 30 years, a period shrunk further by poor construction techniques and maintenance. Worryingly, it shows little signs of failure before its collapse. Former civil servant at the Department of Education, Jonathan Slater, days ago revealed that Rishi Sunak slashed the government budget for school repairs by half in 2021, meaning only 50 rather than 100 schools could be refurbished every year. Slater said in 2021, recognising the looming rat crisis, that the DfE asked the Chancellor to double the number of schools repaired to 200 a year, but added, quote, I thought we'd get it, but the actual decision made in 21 was to halve down from 100 a year to 50 a year. Gareth Davis, head of the government spending watchdog, accused Rishi Sunak's government of a, quote, sticking plaster approach to building repairs and neglecting the, quote, unflashy job of maintaining public buildings in usable condition. So, Rob, what's this all about? Why is this crisis proving so catastrophic for the government? To put it in really simple terms, many people just care about where their kids go to school, right? At the very least, we just hope that we can expect the roof will not collapse on top of our children. My son goes to a really nice little local school. The building is not much to speak of. It is a single-storey block, probably built in the 70s or 80s, and luckily it doesn't contain any rack. Somehow, Waltham Forest Council were able to just announce that there was no crumbly concrete in the borough. I don't know how they knew that. Maybe they were prepared. My point being is the building is not an architectural gem. It's a simple, robust structure, but that can be used to support a great education. I think 
in the wider terms, the general public are just sick and tired of this government failing to reach the absolute bare minimum in terms of standards for a functioning society. I think this story has gone badly for several reasons. Number one, it's just another in a long line of failings that seem to have been piling up recently. We've got the housing crisis, an ailing NHS, and now this confidence in their abilities is at an all-time low. Number two, I just think people don't like seeing kids being endangered. I know that sounds like a really obvious thing to say, but they are a vulnerable category of society and they require our care and support. Number three, this story is broken at just the right time. We're just lining up for the back-to-school stories, um, pupils returning to the classroom. There isn't that much national news because of the summer holidays and Parliament in recess. So really, it's just a perfect storm. I mean, it's really fascinating as well to note that we're being told it's 156 schools. The department still hasn't issued the full list of the 156 schools, which is, you know, 156 isn't that long a list. And clearly the list exists somewhere. Um, Rob, perhaps you could tell us a bit more about recent history surrounding the maintenance and redevelopment of the school's estate. Um, we know, for example, that the last major investment programme was called Building Schools for the Future. It was axed by David Cameron and George Osborne back in 2010. At the time, they famously said they would, quote, fix the roof when the sun was shining. Uh, how much progress has been made in making schools safe and fit for purpose over this past decade or so? Not very much. You mentioned earlier that um, the Jonathan Slater comments about uh, Sunak halving the repairs bill, which... I still find shocking. I should I should be kind of uh, used to this callousness by now, but it still somehow gets to me. And also it's infuriating because it makes no sense, right? They're now going to have to deal with this situation as an emergency, which is going to make it more expensive. They could have been slowly and quietly fixing this in the background, assessing the problem and doing it with a strategy and piecemeal. Now parents and voters and other politicians are going to be on their backs and the whole thing is going to become a massive furor. I think the recent uh, lack of maintenance comes down simply to funding. Capital spending has been slashed. This is an easy political option because it takes years to see the knock-on effects. So you're just kicking the can down the road. I've done some research and I found that in 2010, the government decided to make 60% cuts to education capital. That's around £4 billion at the time. This was actually the single biggest departmental contributor to austerity. And in the spending review, they claimed that by scrapping BSF, they could actually focus on maintenance. Uh, but instead, all of that money has been focused on hospitals, transport, energy and science. School spending per pupil in England fell by 9% in real terms between 2010 and 2020. It's the largest cut in over 40 years. Uh, the government has now allocated an extra £7.1 billion to schools, uh, which increased the spending per pupil by 8%. But that's actually still uh, 1% to 2% lower in real terms than in 2010. And surprise, surprise, deprived schools have seen larger cuts. The most deprived secondary schools saw a 14% real terms fall in spending per pupil compared with a 9% drop for the least deprived schools, which runs totally counter to the government's goal of levelling up poor areas. So this issue has been building for a long time and now we're starting to see the fallout. Just at the moment that we're suffering from inflation and rising material costs, it is a disaster. 
And just just quickly, you've worked in this industry for a long time. What would it have been like if those BSF schools had actually been built? Because, I mean, I, I think of like Burnwood School in Wandsworth that was a BSF and it won the Sterling Prize. Like there's like a whole history of amazing things, amazing educational estate, which just vaporised overnight. So I was kind of caught in some of the storm of this early in my career. So I was working for uh, Richard Rogers, who designed Mossbourne Academy, which has been widely held up as an excellent school, which then had an excellent head. And that was BSF. And that was BSF. And we saw kids from Mossbourne getting into Oxbridge. And, you know, it became a sort of national parable for what you could do with kids from a lower income background. And Mossbourne are now seen as been replicated. There's Mossbournes all over the place. So Michael Gove made that famous quote, um, we're not here to make architects richer. We're not going to commission Rich, the likes of Richard Rogers to build these schools. And at the time, obviously, the practice was really hurt. Their fees were a very, very small part of um, the overall costs of BSF schools. And I think um, blaming architects was just an easy and lazy way out. You know, a lot of the problems with BSF was that uh, contractors and consultants were just creaming off all the, um, all the, all the main money. And it's really interesting this morning, the Guardian's run a piece talking about a kind of scramble to provide uh, modular buildings and like this kind of almost like a gold rush among those suppliers. And it's like, yeah, there are echoes of the PPE scandal. The last thing anyone wants to see is then, you know, like a whole load of built environment being bought at really high prices, which was really unsustainable, which really isn't good value for money for the end user, the school and you know the environment. You know, modular buildings are not the long term sustainable solution or value for money that, that we need. We all know what's going to happen. These things are going to go up fast. They're going to go up cheap. Some people are going to get very rich and the school kids are going to end up with crappy classrooms once again. It's back to porter cabins of the past. And um, I think the general public is sick of it. I think they do want to see long-term vision and strategy going forward. So you, you mentioned the word hindsight. So you know, the Department of Education, they announced all this on the 31st of August and they said it was coming after new evidence emerged over the summer, which, quote, led to a loss of confidence in buildings containing that material, end quote, right? Now, some people are saying that the scale of this crisis has only really become apparent quite recently. It's like... You know, this is a bit of a defence that we're hearing. I mean, is that a justified defence, you know, for these you know, people to say, oh, you know, we were only told a few weeks ago? Or is, is that a bit of obfuscation? First of all, let's just realise that the problem with the Kent collapse was in 2018. What has happened since then? Some questionnaires have gone out, which schools have failed to, some, a lot of schools have failed to return, because guess what? They are not building experts. They don't know this rack is in their buildings. It doesn't show any signs of distress and it uh, can be hidden behind asbestos. So to put the blame on them in the recent times is very unfair. In the longer term view, RAC was installed with a 30-year life expectancy. Since the 1990s, experts have been calling for some kind of a way of dealing with this. And then we've seen investment being slashed comprehensively, as we uh, mentioned earlier on, uh, and that warnings have gone unheeded for, for many, many years. I was speaking recently to Dr Ruth Lang about this and she drew a connection to Grenfell with the famous show me the bodies quote from a civil servant that outlined the fact that safety regulations only come into effect when there are enough deaths to warrant it. I find this absolutely chilling and I'm terrified this is going to happen with schools and other public buildings. 
So the coverage of this crisis, it has largely focused on schools. Obviously, the timing is very sensitive around children going back to school after the summer holidays. However, we reported back on June that there were serious concerns about the NHS's crumbling estate as well. Um, you know, there were countless hospitals built partially with rack. Uh, similarly, experts have come forward this week to warn people in social housing are also at risk. So, Rob, what does the bigger picture of this look like? Um, is this a crisis that could play out over years and cost billions of pounds to remediate? So Dame Meg Hillier, the chairwoman of the Parliament's Public Accounts Committee, has warned that the rack issue in schools is just the tip of the iceberg and that the state of some public buildings was jaw-dropping. And it's not just hospitals and social housing, as you mentioned. Uh, rack has also been put into law courts, factories, and there are some offices at real risk, um, all including the private sector. I read in the Evening Standard uh, that the president of the Institution of Structural Engineers has said that any flat roof constructed between the late 1960s and early 1990s may contain rack. And I think what is really scary here is that we just have no idea of the scale of the problem. Uh, so there's no way to estimate the costs accurately. In addition to this, we've got a construction in industry which is typically risk averse and very slow on innovation. And you need specialists to properly survey the situation. Do we have enough of those, do we think? Absolutely not. Um, if, you're, if people are willing to retrain as a, a rack identifier, I think there's a huge business opportunity there. But joking aside, I'm really worried because I can't see a way that it's possible to tackle this issue before there's some kind of rack-related accident. You know, as I said before, experts say there's very little sign of distress, so there could just be a catastrophic failure and we have no way of knowing when that's going to happen. And just sort of stepping back from it, you know, from a heritage perspective, we were talking about 20th century buildings. I mean, is this going to be... Is, it, is there a kind of big threat to that, that built environment heritage? I mean, they're just going to say, let's demolish loads of stuff and build new and then who you know our mates will build the new stuff and they'll get rich off the back of it and again it's going to be another climate disaster so you know we could have been stitching uh, schools back together carefully thinking about how their campuses work strategically moving things around the kids could stay in school while it's all happening and you avoid um, mineral disturbance uh, what we're just going to see now is a knee-jerk reaction. We know it's coming, and um, I don't think the best interests of the children or the climate are going to be at the top of the agenda. Last week, in a break from its usual coverage, Channel 4 News ran a special segment profiling the work and philosophy of architect Peter Barber, who has spent his career designing and championing social housing. The four-and-a-half-minute film, titled How to Build Beautiful Social Housing, featured interviews with social housing tenants in Barber's McGrath Road Muse Housing in East London, which won the RIBA 2021 Neve Brown Housing Award. Speaking about the 26 Homes scheme, one tenant said, quote, it's a way of living I don't think my children were ever going to experience, end quote. She later went on to say, quote, it's really nice that Peter has changed the aesthetics. I think it's given people the confidence to be able to say, I'm living in social housing. Peter Barber, famous for his commitment to good quality affordable homes, was awarded an OBE for services to architecture back in 2021 and is well known for his consideration of shared spaces, streets and gardens in his high-density housing models. In the Channel 4 interview, Peter Barber put forward his manifesto for how to solve the housing crisis currently engulfing the UK. He said, quote, We should have a social housing programme on the scale that we were able to manage after the Second World War. In my mind, it's one of our proudest achievements as a society, end quote. 
According to data from Shelter, more than 4.4 million social homes were built in the three and a half decades after the end of the Second World War. In 1953 alone, more than 300,000 new homes were constructed. Barber also called for the scrappage of right to buy, as they have done in Scotland and Wales, and the introduction of rent controls. So, Rob, Barber has long been celebrated by architects and people within the built environment sphere. Uh, what has his impact been on architecture in the UK and how significant is it that he's now been given a platform to champion social housing on Channel 4 News? I mean, firstly, I'd like to say that Peter is either a genius or a magician or both. There is some wild devilry at play here which takes a form of architecture that has the power to unite trads and mods in their adoration. I do wish, however, that we could normalise talking about Peter Barber architects as a practice. Um, the founder has brought together a huge wealth of talent and I think they should all enjoy some of the praise for their work. Um, for instance, Alice Brownfield is a director and a few years ago she won the coveted MJ Long Prize at the W Awards. And she's also a co-director of Part W, an organisation that seeks to recognise the role of women in the built environment that have been maybe written out of the history of it. Um, so I think in those terms, I would like to see the, the practice described as weaving this wonderful um, magic. As you might know, Merlin, I recently co-edited a book on collaborative architecture with housing specialist Archeo, and we obviously believe that we're all more than the sum of our parts. Uh, and I don't really believe in this big personality stuff. I was really pleased to see this piece on Channel 4 News, also along with an interview with Miwa Oki, the first black president of Reba. Um, I'd like to see much more architecture on the telly. And I think um, uh, Channel 4 News is doing a good job, but you know we need to go even more mainstream. And obviously, just quickly, his manifesto, it said, like, we need a mass house building programme like the 50s, end right to buy and bring in rent controls. What do you make of this? Is this enough to tackle the housing crisis? And you know, we've obviously, this rat crisis is obviously taking centre stage quite rightly. Um, can you see the government having the capacity to take any of this on board right now? Those three things that you just mentioned, the build, the building programme, ending right to buy, rent controls, yeah. OK, fine. Normally, when we're talking about housing crisis, we go, oh, there's no quick fix to housing crisis. If you did those three, you're going to really put a real dent in it. I think, you know, let's have Peter Barber's uh, manifesto writ large and celebrated um, across London and the rest of the UK. You know, even Peter admits in that interview that his own, own projects are just a drop in the ocean and that, you know, we definitely need this bigger, bolder thinking. Do I think the government is going to take this on board? No. Um, I don't see any will from different political parties across the board. And I think we need some real blue sky thinking. But the realist in me for housing is currently very pessimistic. So elsewhere in the past week, the Nunhead Estate Tenants and Residents Association, they tweeted a hugely insightful thread um, showing exactly how much money council housing has brought into local authority coffers over the years. So, for example, the Nunhead Estate, it was built in the 50s at a cost of £300,000, that includes the land, generates £600,000 every year in rent and service charge. When you take a broader perspective across the country, in a 14-year period from 1994 to 2008, the council's collected £91 billion pounds in rent. Meanwhile, the government paid out £60 billion in grants back to councils, working out as a surplus of £31 billion. So, Rob, how do these figures contrast with the popular narrative around social housing? And why is it that campaigners are even needing to make this point at all in the present time? 
I'm very confused by what you describe as the popular narrative around social housing, and I think the general public are too. If you look at it, it's full of inconsistencies and contradictions. You see people getting nostalgic for a simpler time when you knew your neighbours and you could walk to the shops and kids played in the street. So if we look at archive photos and film footage of estates and social housing, that's all there, right? Uh, That sense of community cohesion, you know, especially as people were moving from the slums of the past uh, into happier, healthier environments, which were architecturally designed. This is then counteracted by a weird demonised view of social housing, you know, often seen as a sort of mad experiment by architects who are trying to have some kind of social control which went completely wrong. We get loads of reports of antisocial behaviour, community breakdown, um, and it often seems to be blamed on the buildings. And then programmes like Benefit Streets don't help, seemingly reinforcing this idea that we've got streets and streets of skivers who are just taking from the state and costing the taxpayer millions rather than actually contributing to the economy. Um, No one ever seems to sit down and take the time to point out the much wider issues around social infrastructure and local economies. Social housing is a part of it, but it's actually intrinsically linked to everything around it. Um, And I would just love this to be part of a national conversation. Polling data shows that more Londoners support the expansion of the ultra-low emission zone to the whole of Greater London than oppose it. Uh, the On London blog reported this week that a survey by YouGov, which was conducted just before the extended anti-pollution scheme came into effect on the 29th of August, found that 47% of Londoners supported the move, which would extend the zone beyond the north and south circular roads. This is compared to 42% who oppose it and 11% of people who didn't know either way. So, as of the 29th of August, the EU led area now encompasses the whole of the capital. It means that all vehicles within this zone that do not meet minimum emission standards will be liable for a daily fee of £12.50. The poll revealed a disparity between inner and outer Londoners, with those situated in central boroughs showing far stronger support. Of those who opposed the ULES expansion, more than half, 51%, admitted they supported the vandalism of Transport for London cameras used to detect the non-compliant vehicles. Meanwhile, London Mayor Sadiq Khan has scrapped plans for a 2025 zero emission zone, that's a ZEZ, uh, which was outlined in City Hall's 2018 transport strategy. The proposal promised to, quote, implement zero emission zones in town centres from 2020 and aim to deliver a zero emission zone in central London from 2025. So, Rob, what's this all about? Uh, The ULES extension has drawn a huge amount of attention and really polarised people, with some praising the mayor, while others are outraged and even resorting to criminal acts of vandalism. Um, When you look at the data, more than 90% of vehicles driving in outer London already comply with the ULES emission standards. So how did this end up becoming such a big deal? It's populist politics, and we don't have to look far back to understand what's going on here. On the 26th of March 2015, Boris Johnson joined David Cameron at the London taxi company factory in Coventry and proudly announced the world's first ultra-low emission zone. He said it was, quote, an essential measure to help improve air quality in our city, protect the health of Londoners and lengthen our lead as the greatest city on earth. Cameron agreed and gave him £25 million to add to the pot and they had their photos taken. Now we've seen the Conservatives hold on to their seat in Uxbridge and everyone's suddenly blaming ULEZ expansion plans on that and saying that the next year's mayoral election could be a referendum on the scheme. And they just, I feel like there is 
certain people who just feel they need this anti-car rhetoric to fire up their base, which is like obviously a term borrowed from American politics. And that's all it is, really. It's a tactic to wage a war when you don't have much ammunition. As you said, most of the vehicles are going to be compliant anyway. So when the scheme finally comes into effect, all of this is just going to dissipate. You know, it's kind of like the smoking ban. You know, everyone was like, it's our civil civil liberties infringed. Oh, I can't smoke indoors. Oh, it's actually nicer. Move on. I think the British people are actually quite good at that. I think it's also worth pointing out uh, the mayor is offering every owner of a non-ULES compliant vehicle a £2,000 grant, while small businesses and sole traders could be eligible for £21,000 and charities £27,000. So what is everyone shouting about? I mean, we know that transport is an issue. We talk about it on the show every week. Like, It's not easy being a pedestrian. It's not easy being a cyclist, right? It's not easy buying a train ticket. Train tickets are really expensive. And if you are somebody who has to be a motorist, whether it's for work or you're disabled or whatever it is, yeah, that's not easy either. It's really expensive. Like cars, petrol, diesel, the prices are through the roof. But it's interesting that none of that really gets much coverage, is it? I mean, you see like wall-to-wall coverage of you, Les, but you don't see like a front page about cycle safety or something like that. Yeah, what role do you think the media might have played in sort of changing the discussion around transport to hone in on quite a niche, small issue in the bigger scheme of things? I mean, I've been on the other side of this. So as part of my job as a working in public relations, I've tried to celebrate projects like um, active travel from the design council and all the great research which is going into these um, schemes i'm afraid to say the national media are just not interested i think there's probably something to be said that they see these as pr puff and positive stories and so i get that that they don't want to be just printing verbatim these stories from the perspective of people behind them but they could still look at them and maybe interrogate them and question that they're either not going far enough or that they're pie-in-the-sky thinking. But we're not getting that at all. So there's just zero interest. And then as soon as, frankly, a minority of car owners say that this is going to destroy their way of life, that makes headlines. To push back on that, imagine you're a newspaper editor... That article's getting loads of clicks. There's a lot of rage, right? So where is this rage coming from? And then also they could say, well, look, this is in the public interest. People are angry about this. They want to know. But I think it's a self-fulfilling feedback loop of anger, right? So the rage is manufactured. As I said before, there are very, very small groups who are um, opposing these strategies. You know, when you, co- when you compare them to maybe, say, climate protesters, they are dwarfed in comparison, right? But the headlines get clicks. Um, the media see something, so suddenly they're commissioning four or five, six, 20, 100 articles about this topic, and then... Other people who weren't concerned at all, maybe didn't even know about ULES and have a ULES compliant car, are suddenly really angry and they're joining the picket line and then there's more articles to write about more people. Sometimes these people are interviewed on the telly and they don't even know what they're angry about. Marks & Spencer has launched a legal bid to overturn Michael Gove's rejection of its Pilbrow & Partners design plan to demolish and redevelop its Oxford Street store. This was reported by the AJ this week. Um, This is a story we've been covering over the past year, and just last month, the levelling up secretary made headlines uh, when he overruled a planning inspector's opinion and threw out the contentious proposal for the retailer's Marble Arch site. Sasha Berenji, that's M&S's operations director, released a a statement last week reading, quote, Today we've launched a legal challenge against the government's decision to reject our Marble Arch store proposal. 
We have done this because we believe the Secretary of State wrongly interpreted and applied planning policy to justify his rejection of our scheme on the grounds of heritage and environmental concerns. The statement from MS follows Gove's controversial decision to overrule a planning inspector following a public inquiry late last year. Setting out his reasons for refusal in a letter, Gove argued that Pilbrow and Partners' 10-storey replacement office-led scheme conflicted with policies on heritage and design, setting what many believe will act as a major precedent for the property and construction sector. Gove specifically highlighted the embodied carbon impact and waste involved in the plan, a consideration raised extensively by the AJ's Retro First campaign and by Save Britain's Heritage at last year's public inquiry. So, Rob, what's this all about? Why is this MS Oxford Street battle still raging? And why is it also such an important case study that's really captivated people's attention in the past year? I think we need to have this very public battle about unnecessary demolition. And it's quite amazing that, like the rack story, it goes to show people do actually care about the built environment. I also want to give a shout out to the campaigners who've pushed this so far because they have kept it in the headlines. There has been a concerted effort and it does feel like this scheme is a big potential turning point. We've heard from some figures in the property industry that the CATM is already amongst the pigeons and that people are looking at retention or other options because they don't want this kind of unwanted attention. That shows the power of campaigning. And to be honest, I think that the Overton window has already been shifted so far that even if MS, that particular MS building was now taken down, I think the campaigners would feel emboldened to keep fighting on behalf of other buildings. I do think, you know, the building that we're talking about, it wasn't very well known. You know, it wasn't particularly popular. I just think it's obvious, even to non-experts like myself, there's nothing wrong with it, right? And that perhaps people are st- sort of starting to realise that the real motivations for the demolition are the potential sale value of the new building in the future. So people aren't really feeling very sorry for MS in this particular predicament. I'm actually very disappointed in the brand. They've got a published commitment to um, a plan A sustainability, and this does seem to fly in the face of that. They've had so many opportunities to backtrack and go back to the drawing board, look at alternative options for reuse, which they're just deciding to bullishly go ahead. Again, not good PR, I'm afraid. I know at least one practice, there are probably others, who've offered MS multiple times a free feasibility study for retention and they've never had uh, any reaction. It's interesting because this story sparked a kind of flurry of articles about Oxford Street and the death of that particular high street. Okay, so in the in the weeks following Michael Gove's decision, you know, pundits have been accusing this planning decision as being a, a kind of nail in the coffin of Britain's most famous shopping street. Um, so, Rob, is it fair to pin it all on this M&S store debate, or is there a more to the picture of why Oxford Street has been ailing in recent times? No, of course it's not fair. There are so many issues facing Oxford Street and high streets up and down the country soaring business rates, larger companies putting smaller ones out of business, you know, sometimes a lack of investment in public transport to get shoppers to the heart of walkable towns and cities rather than driving to retail parks. And we mustn't forget the ever online threat of online shopping. Obviously, the transport issue can't be levied against Oxford Street, really well serviced. But the whole area has been going very weird for a long time. We've seen these American candy stores popping up. However, 
there is a ray of sunshine. Uh, Westminster Council recently announced their Meanwhile on Oxford Street programme that invites small businesses to apply um, for a shop on the iconic street completely rent-free. Uh, they get a pop-up shop for six months. The programme is aimed at companies that are looking for their first physical presence. I think this sounds amazing and I think it, I think it's going to be successful and I think if it's successful, I think it's going to be replicated in other places. So that's the power of Oxford Street is to say this is the future of retail and this is how we support small businesses and this is how local government getting involved shifts the dial, not big brands. Okay, so we're on to the culture section and uh, we're going to touch on something about awards because this week uh, the RIBA's Sterling Prize shortlist uh, has been announced. Quite a big moment in the architectural calendar nationally. Uh, It's basically the UK's largest, most prestigious accolade uh, in architecture. So who's on the list? It turns out there's quite a few buildings in London. So one of them's a house for artists in Barking, a really cool artist living workspace uh, right in the centre of Barking designed by Apparata Architects, um, a sort of new up-and-coming practice, really unusual to see such a, a new small company shortlisted for such a big prize. It's quite rare to, to see that happen. Um, Central Summerstown Community Facilities and Housing, well, that's quite a long name for basically a, a kind of youth centre uh, with some lovely housing on top, designed by Adam Kahn Architects, great architect. Courtauld Connects, so that's um, a redevelopment of the Courtauld Institute of Art, the Courtauld Gallery by Witherford Watson Mann Architects. They've won the Sterling Prize before in the past for Astley Castle in the Midlands. The John Morden Centre in Blackheath by May. Lavender Hill Courtyard Housing in Wandsworth by Surgeson Bates Architects. So that's like a beautiful courtyard, which is not visible from Lavender Hill, unfortunately, but is just off Lavender Hill. Um, University of Warwick Faculty of Arts Coventry by Fielding to Clegg Bradley Studios. Um, Rob, got any thoughts on this shortlist? So I'm a born and bred Londoner and I'm the director of the London Society. And I'm horrified at how London-centric this list is, which the RIBA claims it always stands against. One could, and many architects will argue, that these just happen to be the six best buildings in the UK right now just happen to be mostly in London. Um, I would argue that's also poppycock. There are some great projects around the country that were entered this year, including the East Key Arts Centre in Watchet. If you can... If you can get yourself together to travel to watch it, it's not easy. I would really recommend it. It was set up by a group of um, seven local women who crowdfunded a cultural centre and and it's was described by Ollie Wainwright in The Guardian as a sort of piratical magnificence. Um, you also saw the Creative Centre at York St John University, which is incredibly environmentally friendly and energy efficient, something which is lacking from the Sterling shortlist. Uh, you know, and even in London, the um, LSE building by Grafton is a stunning piece of architecture, which I think will really last the test of time. So I think that building will be standing in hundreds of years and will be loved then as much as it is now. So I think what we're seeing from this shortlist is a series of very well-made, very polite buildings, very beige, very unimaginative as a shortlist. They're individually all very good, but I think the general public will completely switch off. They will just think all architecture is boring and I think we're going to go back steps. So I think it's a very regressive shortlist and I think that the entire process needs a complete shake-up for us to consider how are the public going to engage with architecture? What do they like? So perhaps maybe we need non-architects judging these buildings. 
So next up in culture, of course, it's Open House Festival 2023, uh, described by some people as my Glastonbury. Uh, almost feels like Christmas in the office when <laughs> Open House is coming. Uh, it's epic. It's kicking off right now all over London. Uh, so Open House, founded back in 1992, typically sees, sees around 250,000 people engaged with London's most compelling architecture, heritage and communities. Uh, some of the big hitters this year include the BT Tower. Uh, really, really cool. Get, go up there and see the revolving former restaurant 10 Downing Street and also the under construction new London Museum in Smithfield so this year Open City held an open call for architects this was judged by AJ technical editor and deputy architecture editor Fran Williams the idea was that these architects would participate as design partners in London's open house festival I really love the five winners I think it's really cool so they got bike works by Foster Kirk architects the Hackney School of Food by Sermon Weston Phoenix Garden by Office Cyan that's absolutely stunning really worth checking out. Uh, the Africa Centre by Freehouse down in Southwark. Again, get down there and see it. And also the Nags Head Market by Office s and um, So they're all going to feature in a special collection. Those are just some of the places I'm going to be checking out, uh, along with other amazing things that I want to experience for the first time. There really is nothing that compares to that open house feeling of going somewhere and just, just being completely transformed by the experience of going inside, but also meeting the people. You know, that is the best thing about it. Rob, What's your open house looking like? Uh, any any things that have caught your attention? Any uh, new inclusions this year that you're excited about? I'm one of these people who's never organised enough to book onto things. So every year I just plot out an area um, to go to where I can try and see as much as I as humanly possible just by turning up. I really want to see the Africa Centre. I've not been there yet. I really want to see the Phoenix Community Centre by Office Sign, those two that you mentioned. I also historically have volunteered for Open House so that I can I can get a pass that gets me into more access to buildings. So I definitely recommend that. Rob, it's been an immense pleasure to feature you on The Brief uh, this week. Where can our listeners go to stay up to speed on the important work you're doing as the new director of the London Society? Well, I'm on various social medias at, at Rob underscore Fien, but don't worry about me. Please follow the London Society. It's very easy to find. We have a new under-30s free membership, which hopefully will help us diversify the society. And there's the London of Future book coming out, which please go and buy because I think it's full of lots of interesting ideas for the next 100 years. Thanks, Rob. You've been listening to The Brief from Open City, made in association with the London Society and the 20th Century Society. This show is made possible in part thanks to Bloomberg Connects, a free digital guide to art and cultural organisations around the world. A link to download Bloomberg Connects is in the show notes. If you've enjoyed The Brief and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which covers all these issues and many more. To get early ad-free access to The Brief and support Open City's wider work empowering young people from underrepresented communities, please become an Open City friend today. The link is in the show notes. The Brief is produced by Poppy Waring and hosted by Phineas Harper, Merlin Fulcher, Cyber Chadder and Fran Williams. The series editor is Merlin Fulcher. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities everywhere more open, accessible and equitable. Thank you.